Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode focuses on the 1959 film Daddy-O. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hi there, thanks for joining me for episode two. If you missed episode one of The Baton, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that one first. In that episode, I give you an idea of the purpose of this podcast, and I give you a history of the first 26 years of John Williams' life. And I think that'll give you a lot of information that will color a lot of what we talk about through the next 107 episodes. So go ahead and just go back to episode one. You can come back to here and we'll be waiting for you. So we are now ready to officially start our journey through the film score filmography of John Williams. And it starts in 1959 with the film Daddio. And I truly believe this film belongs in the Library of Congress film registry because it features the first original film score by John Williams, who in about 16 years would become the most famous film composer in the world. The Library of Congress is where pieces of art are archived and preserved because they have a, quote, cultural, historic, and or aesthetic importance, end quote, to American heritage. Now, don't you agree that the first film score written by the most influential film composer in history deserves preservation into the National Film Registry? If you have seen this film, there is no doubt about its low-grade artistic quality, which was exemplified when one of my favorite TV shows, Mystery Science Theater 3000, mocked the film in one of its episodes. If I were the librarian of Congress, I would not select Daddio on that merit alone. But some films on the National Film Registry are on the list simply because they are the first to do something artistic and aren't necessarily critically acclaimed award winners. So, let's get a campaign going to submit Daddy-O to the Library of Congress. Do an internet search on Library of Congress Film Registry and you'll see a link to a page where you will find a way to nominate Daddy-O. I've already submitted my nomination. I hope you'll do the same, especially after we're done exploring this score. So, again, I want to talk about why this podcast is going in chronological order through John Williams' Film Score Library. By doing it this way, we're able to see the growth of John Williams as a film composer, orchestrator, and arranger. Imagine listening to the first works by Mozart or Beethoven, or viewing the first paintings by Picasso or Da Vinci. Would you hear or see any hints of genius in them? Probably not, but I would argue that it's better to see where they started in order to understand their rises to the top. Can any hints of musical genius be heard in the score to Daddio? Well, we'll explore that in this episode. Before we delve into the score, I want to talk a bit about the film. And as I will do in every episode, I want to warn you that plot spoilers lie ahead. The film Daddio was made in 1958, but was released in U.S. theaters in 1959 as a B-movie, the second in a double feature with Road Racers, another film of questionable quality. Both deal with troubled teens and follow just about every movie cliche in the wake of the more popular Rebel Without a Clause that was released four years earlier. Daddy-O starred Dick Contino and Sandra Giles, who looked a little too pretty and a little too old for this film. 
but the plot never really hinges on their ages. But they are clearly not teenagers in a film that was marketed for that demographic. Just kind of think of all those John Hughes Brat Pack films. All those actors were in their 20s, but they were playing high school students, and we really didn't care. So the plot of Daddy-O centers around the mysterious murder of a kid named Sonny DeMarco, whose car ran off the road and exploded into flames. His, fi- his friend, Phil, played by Dick Contino, is charged with the death after participating in a road race through a nearby park at night with a beautiful girl named Jana. Though Phil is eventually cleared of the manslaughter charges, he gets curious about Sonny's death and his investigation leads him to a mobster named Sidney Chillis. What really gets me is that Phil thinks he's going to uncover Sidney's involvement in the murder by working in Sidney's new club. Keep your enemies closer, I suppose. Anyway, Phil, whose license has been revoked for the reckless driving early in the movie, gets a new license with a fake name. He's a big hit as a a singer at the club and spends more time charming the ladies than solving a murder. Once he trusts Phil, Sidney Chillis makes Phil one of his drug runners, delivering some unknown drugs to people who in turn pay handsomely. Phil's first delivery goes well, but Phil runs into some police on the way to a second delivery. Phil gets beat up and realizes that Chillis was the one who had Sonny killed. How Phil came to that realization must have fallen on the cutting room floor because we don't really get to see his process of deduction. But this leads to a final confrontation in a wine cellar in which Chillis, who is quite overweight, manages to hold his own in a fight with the very athletic athletic Phil. And in the end, Chillis is knocked out by crashing into a bunch of wine crates. The police make arrests, and just like that, the film is over. So the material doesn't lend itself completely to a rich and complex musical score, no matter how talented the composer is. As a first assignment, it's a great way for John Williams to use his jazz background and write music that can be lauded more for its orchestration than for the notes he wrote. So let's start with the opening titles. It's 60 seconds of pretty good music and has a nice little harmony that continues into the opening scene when Jana, played by Sandra Giles, cuts off truck driver Phil in her convertible. Unfortunately, that music isn't developed into anything for the rest of the movie. John Williams hadn't discovered the concept of writing themes just yet, but he does well in setting the tone of the film. The first instance of underscore takes place about 13 minutes into the movie, when Sonny is driven off the road. Thank you. 
so there are a lot of sound effects here, a lot of screeching tires and everything, but the music still works well to kind of raise the tension of the threat of Sonny being driven off the road. And what I really like is that the music cuts off just as before the car explodes. Now, I don't know if that was a decision made by John Williams or the editors later on, but it works really well. And this is a very good first underscore written by John Williams. And there's a transition music cue later on that lasts just 20 seconds, but it's pretty good and I wanted you to hear it. It's when Phil is taken to the police station after he's suspected of running Sonny off the road. You'll hear how strong the jazz influence is in this brief bit of music. This is a prime example of John Williams focusing more on the orchestration of the music and not so much what the notes are trying to convey. One of the staples of a jazz composer is muted trumpets, and John Williams uses them to great effect in this next cue when Phil sneaks into Janet's garage to see if she was the one who ran Sonny off the road. About 29 minutes into the film is one of the first great moments of composition for John Williams. This is the scene when Phil and Jana break into the gym where Sonny supposedly was keeping something secretive in his locker, and Phil wanted to find it before someone else did. So we're back to hearing the muted trumpet, and there's some saxophone in this scene, which I'm going to call the sneaking around scene. And John Williams is great at this. And it's all nice and quiet. Then it builds up into... So I've always been a fan of the way John Williams lines up his music to a particular action on screen. And in this case, he cues up the orchestra hit that you heard to take place when an unknown person turns on a light in the gym. Turns out that this is Bruce, who is one of Sonny Chilla's right-hand men. It's definitely not easy to do something like this. Um, composers watch a final cut of the film, which is probably in the 1950s on a moviola, and then they write the score while continually watching a particular scene to figure out how the pacing and the music fit. Sometimes a composer just needs to know that a scene lasts a certain length of time, and then they will write music to fit within that time frame. Other times, a particular action might dictate a special music section, and the composer has to make sure their composition is timed correctly and doesn't work against the on-screen dialogue and sound effects. John Williams has said it often takes him one day to write a one minute of film music, 
So going back to this scene in Daddio where John Williams wrote music to time with the turning on of a light, it probably took him a couple of days to get the music in this scene timed correctly. Perhaps William had this idea when he was spotting the film. Perhaps it came later. I'm not really sure. But it's still a great idea to do it as such. When it came time to perform the music cue with the orchestra, Williams conducted with the scene playing in front of him, making sure the music and the visuals lined up. If the orchestra is good and the conductor is good, the music can be done in one take. But it's my understanding that hardly any musical cue in a score is done in one take. There's always one section of the orchestra that goes off tempo, or the composer gets a better idea, rewrites it quickly, or asks a particular musician to change a particular measure. Remember the scene I talked about earlier when Phil gets involved in a chase from the police and a drug run gone bad? Well, John Williams scored that, but not the entire scene, unfortunately. We only get to hear music for about 45 seconds of the nearly 90-second scene, and we don't hear the music when Phil's car jumps a ramp and the ensuing police motorcycle crashes into a fire hydrant. Let's listen to the music as written in the film, starting when the police chase starts. This would have been another great opportunity for some spot music writing to go with the action. A great orchestral build as Phil Carr jumps the ramp, and then maybe a nice cymbal crash when the police car hits the hydrant seemed like no-brainer choices. The way the music cuts off so quickly, I am inclined to believe that John Williams wrote music for this scene, but the director decided to cut it in favor of the sound effects. And this was not the last time John Williams' music would have a battle with sound effects. About two minutes later, Phil is taken to a loft and beaten up for not delivering the drugs. There's a nice rising note theme played on clarinets, I believed, then a counter melody first played on saxophone, then moved to piano, and finally to the trumpet. Once the men get Phil into the warehouse and they question him, there's an orchestral hit when Phil gets punched in the stomach. Where is he? Where is what? Where is it, Pete? I don't know what you're talking about. Those of you who know John Williams' music well know that he is quite adept at transferring melodies from one instrument to the next in the same music cue. 
Often, I sense it's just a way to keep the music from being boring when you repeat a melody, but it can also be done in scene changes, as it's done here in Daddio. And I'll give you another example here. So, of course, that's music from Star Wars. But let's get back to Daddio. So, we're going to hear this music from this scene again, and we're going to break down that melody that's played on three different instruments, and we're going to start with the saxophone melody. So that plays when Phil is put in the car and taken to the warehouse. The piano takes over when he and his captors have a relatively quiet moment on the elevator. And then the trumpet takes over. It's a wonderful piece of music writing, and it's great to see John Williams finding one of his many musical voices in just his first film. The third act features a lot of great music writing. It gives John Williams a chance to do more with scoring the emotion of the scene, commenting on it, and helping the audience get more involved with the action. First up is a fight scene with Sidney Chillis' right-hand man, a blind bat lackey who is named Bruce. One reason John Williams is so good at what he does is the excellent music he writes for the brass section. This fight scene is dominated by trumpets, finally unmuted, and the French horn. Think of the French horn as being the instrument for Bruce, while the trumpet, a much bolder instrument, is signifying Phil. And it's the trumpet who wins in the score as Phil overpowers Bruce. I really like that final statement on the trumpet. Without it, you feel happy that Phil won the fight, but with, with the music, that emotion is amplified and you almost, almost want to stand up and cheer for Phil. That's the essence of the job of the composer. Steven Spielberg once said that his job as a director is to get the, is to get the tears welling up in your eyes, and it's the composer who makes the tears run down your face. So after Phil beats up Bruce and goes back to the club, he confronts Sidney and almost gets shot. 
Bill runs to the basement, as one does when someone is running after you with a gun. And John Williams has a little fun with the piano. It's just about 30 seconds, but that is some damn fine piano writing. Too bad it didn't stick around for the final confrontation, though, as Phil and Sidney duke it out in the wine cellar. Here's what we get instead. Apart from the film, this is a very nice piece of music, but it just doesn't fit the scene. I would have liked the quiet piano played here while the two are sneaking through the wine cellar. As it is, the music sometimes gets a bit too loud and you almost want to say, shh, be quiet, they're sneaking around. So, Williams didn't get the opportunity to write end credits music for Daddy-O because in those days, all the pertinent film personnel were mentioned at the start of the film. Luckily, the film ends before Phil gets to sing another song. There are three songs featured in the film, none of them written by John Williams. They are all songs of the era, whether a Frank Sinatra-esque love ballad or a song written just to play in the dance hall. And thankfully, none of them got a commercial release. But I do want to play one of them, and it's called Rock Candy Baby. Sweeter than cherry, boysenberry, sweeter than coffee, English toffee, sweeter than jam is candy jam, rock candy baby, you're mine. Well, I found me a mama with sugar lips every time she talks how the honey drips, so rock candy baby, that's what I call my chick. Daddy-O wasn't going to be a big money maker, especially when it's billed as a B-movie. But it got a second life in July 1991 in the seventh episode of the third season of Mystery Science Theater 3000. This was the first season that was aired on Comedy Central, and so it gained a big following for its So Bad It's Good vibe. Here's a little bit of how Joel and his robots commented on John Williams when his name came up in the credits. 
Oh no, John Williams before he heard Stravinsky. <laughs> but I kid Stravinsky. <laughs> not necessarily a put down of John Williams, but not a glowing assessment either. But what else can you expect from Mystery Science Theater 3000? So there it is. The first film score written by John Williams. Somewhere in my mind, I had known that this film featured John Williams' first score, but with the film difficult to find and the score never released commercially as an album, I never actively tried to find it. Until now. And I'm glad that I have seen the film and heard the music, and and I'm glad to have shared it with you. That will wrap up this episode of The Baton. The next episode will explore the music from a radically different film called I Passed for White. I hope you'll join me as we talk about the film and the score for that as it features more historical significance through the career of John Williams. And as always, I'd love to hear your comments about this episode or any episode of The Baton. You can email me at jeffswim at aol.com. You can find me on Twitter at jeffswim. Or you can send me a comment on this show's website, thebatonpodcast.podbean.com. Until I see you next time, the baton is down.